Hi, Raphael Bender here, founder of Breathe Education, and you're listening to the Pilates Elephants podcast. There are many things that are awesome about the Pilates industry. However, many of the practices that we take for granted are out of date, illogical, or just plain pseudoscientific. These are the elephants in the room, and I'm here to talk about them openly and honestly, and with a couple of F-bombs thrown in for good measure. Pilates Elephants is about debunking the myths and giving you science-based tools to become a better, happier, and more fearless teacher who really fucking knows your stuff. Hey, Natalie. Hey, Raph. Good to be with you. You too. How are you doing? I am doing pretty awesome. Uh, I've got kind of a mixed bag of internal uh, experiences going on at the moment, but overall, I'd say 87% awesome. Awesome. I just came from your... um, I'm good. I just came from your workshop, your first of three. It was really fun to see you with all of your different hairstyles. <laughs> yeah, I had fun looking, actually, I had fun looking through, back through my photos for those <laughs> images from when I trained with Stop Pilates in 2004 and 2010. And <laughs> oh my God, the whole period from like 2000, like I didn't show you the worst ones, from about 2012 to 2016 or 17, I went through this massive 1970s um, phase and like I had my whole hairstyle wardrobe, like I was, I was fanatical, you know, OCD <laughs> about only wearing things from the seventies. Um, and yeah, I look back now, I'm like, oh my God, cringe ability. <laughs> yeah. so, what does anyway. your daughter think about, what, what does your daughter think about all of your old styles? Uh, I don't, I don't, I haven't looked at that stuff with her, but at the time she loved it. We used to, I used to have all these matching Adidas tracksuits, so like the top and bottom matching, you know? Um, uh, and I had all of the old retro ones like Bruce Lee used to wear and the, you know, imagine the 1971, like, you know, weightlifting team at the Olympics or whatever, you know, like that, them wearing those <laughs> tracksuits. And we used to play this game called Unzip Pockets where she'd, you know, unzip one pocket and then I'd say, Oh, the other one seems to be zipped up, and then she'd unzip that one while I'd zip up the other one. This was when she was like four, you know. <laughs> but but um, since then, I don't think she really has given much of a thought to my old tracksuits. Occasionally, people ask me, "Oh, have you still got that tracksuit?" I'm like, no, it's got, got rid of them all. <laughs> well, I'm much happier now. <laughs> but you know, we all have fashion faux pas in our in our past. Surely, do you have any? Mm, I mean, I grew up in the '80s and the '90s, so you know, side ponytails and a lot of turquoise and hot pink go, and things like that. Did you go through the the pink and lime green thing over there? We had pink and lime green here mm-hmm. like in the early 2000s. That yep. was a thing. Yeah. Yep. What about like late 90s early 2000s sort of rave culture influenced fashion with the big flared jeans and the big, yeah. you know, chunky boots and stuff like that? Yeah, that? I think I I didn't do that. I was mostly into the like the plaid and the empire waist baby doll dresses and the chokers and that kind of thing. I grew up in Hawaii. And so fashion was really different in Hawaii. We just, things trickled through. So it was when I moved to the continental US and started looking around at everybody that I just, you know, I was trying to figure out, (laughs) I had to figure out what the style was because in Hawaii, everything is just so filtered down. 
And, and we didn't have the internet. About, right. I don't know anything about Hawaii apart from what I've seen on Hawaii Five O. So forgive my, you know, almost complete ignorance. But I imagine just the weather's so nice, everyone just walking around in t-shirts and shorts and flip-flops the whole time anyway. Is that true? Yeah, that's pretty much true. Yeah. I did not wear a lot of clothes in Hawaii. It's too hot. Yeah. yeah that's why I don't like living in hot climates because it's like you have to just wear shorts and t-shirt all the time. You can never wear jeans or <laughs> a jumper. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we are here today to talk about gatekeeping in Pilates. So um, do you want to set this one up for us? Yeah, sure. I have been a longtime listener of the podcast, and I kept hearing people's stories, and I kept thinking about gatekeeping. So, for instance, I was listening to Kyle Marsh's podcast with you, podcast episode with you, and she was talking about authoritarian teaching styles. Mm -hmm. And that made me think of gatekeeping because I thought, okay, so... In the work that I do, I am asked to assess and evaluate a client's abilities, which oftentimes feels very uncomfortable for me. I don't really truly like being the expert in the room. So I thought about that with gatekeeping. Um, one of the conversations that was really that really stuck with me was Laura Cruz's conversation with you, and she kept bringing up this really true idea that we label exercises as beginner, intermediate, and advanced. And that just makes zero sense to a person on an individual level, right? Like, so for me, I know that a lot of people have a hard time with roll-up. You have a hard time with roll-up? Oh, fuck. It's my nemesis. Yeah. Yeah. And I hear that all the time. And roll-up is something like I can knit a sweater and drive and do roll-up at the same time. (laughs) It's just not a big deal for me at all. And... I don't consider that to be a talent or a skill. It's just something that's easy for me to do, like how I can bend my thumb behind my hand, right? Like it's just something I can do. I think I think it's a talent. It's a, it's a talent bending your thumb behind your hand. You know, <laughs> I don't necessarily think you can take full credit for years of practice to develop that talent. But it's like it's definitely a talent. And I think, yeah, people are born with, you know, I'm an atheist, but I'm going to say God given you know, gifts basically, you know, bestowed by the fates. Some people have amazing voices. Some people can run fast. Some people can write poetry. Some people can bend their thumbs backwards. You know, I knew this kid in primary school who could bend his eyelids back on top of themselves. <laughs> yeah, I knew like, like that too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I think I think you I think you should take credit for it because I think I mean, and the, you know, I'd stop me from going off too far off the reservation here, but um, I think even things that we you know we feel like oh we didn't earn it, you know you didn't earn the ability to do roll up because it's just like well you just tried on day one and you could do it well you know that's good but. Even those of us who've worked hard, like I've worked really fucking hard to build, you know, a lot of the success that I've experienced in life, but I still feel like that is mostly luck. Like I'm lucky that I was born with genes or raised or whatever, you know, whatever nature versus nurture, you know, you believe in, but you know, through no fault of my own, I, I, I enjoy hard work. You know, through no fault of my own, I just happen to be someone who is goal oriented and solution focused. Like, you know, I didn't make myself. So I'm just like luck of the draw, you know, got those genes that predispose me to hard work. And probably, yeah, hard work's part of it, but probably just being in the right place, the right time, the right moment in history, the right parents, the right, all of that is a large part of it as well. So it's like, can any of us really take any credit for anything? I don't know. I, I seriously doubt that. Yeah. That's my point. I mean, 
and that's part of it too. It's like, I don't feel like, I feel like because I'm a petite person with a short torso, I can probably do roll up really, really well. That doesn't necessarily yeah. make me an advanced Pilates practitioner because I could do roll up, you know, my very first class. So that was an interesting conversation to listen to <clears throat> with Laura because I totally agreed with her. And then yeah. the most recent podcast episode you had that I was thinking about gatekeeping and the one that made me reach out to you was the one you had with Julie Driver and mm. ab about underloading. And that one really was a trigger for me because I belong to, oh, what, a culture, a community of Pilates teachers who I think in general really do underload their, their beginner students. And that's something that um, has been just a pet project of mine is to, when I work with beginning beginner students, people who have never been in the Pilates studio before or have injuries or <clears throat> are adaptive clients with medical needs or special needs, they're considered beginners. How do I make the work interesting and challenging for them. And that has been something that's been on my mind for many, many years. So when I listened to Julie Driver's episode with you, I just couldn't hold it in anymore. I just thought, oh, this is, you know, there's so many reasons why I think we underload our students. But one of those reasons is it has to do with gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so specifically by that, do you mean sort of, you know, like what you alluded to when you're working your studio and you have to assess somebody and decide whether they're a beginner, intermediate or advanced or, or whatever, that, you you know, we as instructors or, you know, some amongst us are tasked with, you know, basically saying who's allowed into the intermediate session yeah. or who's allowed to do the intermediate repertoire. Well, if you can't do roll-up, you're not allowed to do teaser sort of right. thing. Yeah. Well, it's like, I think well, I'm actually pretty good at teaser, even though I suck ass at roller. Yeah. 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 Um, I think that you had said it in the podcast too. I think you said to, you said you responded to Julie, like we, you, you have to tell your student, you need to do this well before you can do this well. Right. And I yeah. think some of that is warranted. Obviously I don't know how to do a pistol squat. I can't do one. So I'm not just going to do that. I will do other things first, but I have found. Although I would argue do a pistol squat hanging onto the back of a chair is right. the best way to learn to do pistol squats. Yeah. Yeah. I was just talking about without holding onto a chair. You wouldn't ask right. me to do that. Right. No. Yeah. But um, yeah, <clears throat> I feel like there are a well, lot of. I'm sorry. I, I'm, Go ahead. You just got my biomechanical brain thinking here. Mm. Like if you couldn't do a pistol squat, the main, and a pistol squat, for those of you out there who can't imagine what the fuck's a pistol squat, it's where you basically do a one-legged squat where one foot's off the ground and your the leg that's off the ground is straight out in front of you. So your your hip is bent 90 degrees or more and your your, your top leg is fully straight and basically you just squat down you know on one leg until your butt hits your heel and then you stand all the way back up again. And it's, you know... 90% of the time, I reckon, when people can't do a pistol squat, uh, you know, um, injuries and pathologies aside, it's because they fall over backwards when they get to, this, to the bottom. They can't maintain their balance, and that's because their center of mass is too far behind their base of support, and that might be to do with ankle mobility um, and just, you know, torso length and femur length and whatever. Uh, so, so sometimes, like if you were doing a pistol squat and you were my client and you said, oh, you know, I said, try this pistol squat, and you're like, okay, great, and you went down and you fell over backwards. 
I would I would give you a kettlebell or a dumbbell or some other hand weight or a weight plate or something like that and say, hold that out in front of you at arm's length and that would move your center of mass forwards and make it much easier for you to balance. But at the same time, it would be in one sense from a strength perspective would actually be a harder, you know, a progressed version of that exercise. So for some people actually that quote harder version, you know, is easier because like, yeah, it's harder for strength, but it's easier for balance. So sometimes you go forwards to go backwards. I'm going to try that when I'm cleared to exercise. <laughs> yeah. Don't do it today. Yeah. I wouldn't want you to fall over with a kettlebell on top of you. <laughs> Not a good plan. All right. So I'm sorry. I, I, I uh, derailed the, your whole train of thought there, but, um, you know, we, you know, who says that you have to do exercise A before you can do exercise B? Like I was taught that in Stop Pilates and I can't remember the exact exercises, but it was like, okay, this is layer one and you would teach these 10 exercises and that would be like knee floats and ab prep and lots of, you know, teeny tiny little movements. And I think it's the same, you know, and if you, until you can do all those well, as in like move your leg with your pelvis staying still, you can't do, I don't know, scissors or, you know, single leg stretch or whatever. And I think that also is uh, happens in the corrective movement space, which is outside of Pilates. But, you know, if you go to a CrossFit gym or somewhere where they, they're doing that corrective movement model, they won't let you lift a barbell until you've got like, you know, quote, great, good technique with a yeah. broomstick, you know. Yeah. And um, there's a whole range of biomechanical reasons why that, and motor learning reasons why that's not, I think, a good plan. But, you know, let's let's sidestep that for now. But so I think it's not confined to Pilates. and it, But it's it's patently, I think it's not, not obvious to me that you have to be able to do knee floats before you can do single leg stretch. Yeah. Well, and you know, the, going back to your um, example about corrective labor with gatekeeping. And so one of the things that I was doing in preparation for our chat today, I went to like four or five different Pilates studios, just random ones. I don't know any of these studios. Oh my yeah. God, you really do yeah. your preparation don't you like you are like a method actor um so i went to all of these different websites just random pilates studios That's That's the awesome. ones that yeah. do leveled classes you know where they have beginners intermediate and advanced and i was just reading through all of their explanations mm -hmm. about what the different levels were where you should try to put yourself when you join the studio and on top of their prerequisite of mastering certain choreography or movements or postures, there were things, and you know, I think this might be a podcast for another time, not that I'm inviting myself back because I have no idea what to talk about. But the, the thing that kept coming up was before you can advance to another level, we want you to embody and understand and demonstrate that the fundamental principles that kept that kept coming up fundamental principles and foundational principles and just all of mm -hmm. these like mm -hmm. words mm -hmm. that kind of give the practice this mystique right i mean i think that i think you know what i'm talking about like there's this mystique about pilates where it's just like you need to know mm -hmm. these essential fundamental principles mm -hmm. before you and i'm just like what mm -hmm. the hell does that even mean and as a teacher i don't even understand how mm -hmm. to how to teach that uh, some of the things i understand so like some of the principles what are like 
concentration, centering, breathing. Do you remember all this? You used to teach this. They're like six, right? Yeah. And so I guess maybe my first question to myself or to the audience, because I think this is going to be, you know, we're not going to come up with any resolutions here in this podcast today. It's just a conversation. (laughs) Uh, Uh, No, I'm not going to. Hold on. We're not going to solve. Not going to solve this. <laughs> There's no resolution. Stick around to the end, folks. We're going to reveal. We're going to reveal the the true answer. But you know, like let's just talk about about breathing. Not. You know, yeah. my yeah. job as a teacher to teach a beginner is to breathe. Well, I don't really do that anymore. So, I just took myself out of employment for half of Seattle. I don't do that anymore. Or like, you know, concentration. It's, I can tell somebody to concentrate, but that is really different for different people. And centering, like these are all such really amorphous terms that just don't really, you know what I mean? And and a lot of these studios are saying before you can move up to level two or intermediate or whatever, we want you to embody these things. And it just seems so completely ambiguous to me as a teacher, as a Pilates teacher so it must be for for clients coming in yeah yeah i I would agree now i I guess i want to say that i mean if you're if you're a more contemporary trained teacher maybe those weren't the principles you learned maybe if you were like me and you learned to stop pilates you learn like scapula stabilization and you know thoracic placement and stuff as those being your kind of quote foundational principles or maybe if you learned in a more of a classical style you learn your centering precision control flowing movement or breath all of that stuff which actually didn't come from Joseph. They came from the first book was like Gail Friedman and Ison. What I can't remember his first name, but basically in the 1980s they wrote this book called um, Pilates something something. <laughs> can't remember. I've got it on my shelf behind me, but um, and that's the first pl- that's the first place you you see those uh, you know quote principles uh, mentioned. Uh, they're not in either of Joseph Pilates' books, so. Uh, I guess uh, long-windedly, what I'm trying to say is uh, if you do those principles, you know, good on you, you're awesome. If you do different principles, good on you, you're awesome. If you don't do any principles, that's fucking awesome. You're like, you know, no. we, we don't we don't. There's care. no judgment. We don't Mm-mm. judge. You're, you're welcome here. But, right, but. But I agree, that, and and actually, it's funny that you say they're kind of amorphous and 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 nebulous and hard to define. It's like okay, well, if someone is sent, you know, centering, what does that mean? Right, and people might say things like you know, initiating movement from the center, engaging the core continuously, you know, stuff, words like that. But it's like okay, initiating movement from the center. Well, what does that literally mean? Like if I'm a teacher and you're you're instructing me on how to detect or measure whether somebody is initiating movement from their center. It's like, well, what specifically do I see that tells me that they, you know, that they are doing that? And and how could I measure that? And if I measured a hundred people, you know, would I be, would I consistently accurately measure it? If you measure those same hundred people without knowing what I had, you know, yeah. <laughs> de- you know, detected, would we agree? How, you know, what percentage of the time would we agree? And would it be any better than the coin toss? And uh, I suspect it wouldn't because when we even measure things like scapular stabilization, um, there's copious literature on this. And I just gave a lecture lecture in the diploma on this, that actually we suck ass at measuring scapular movement. You know, even experienced physiotherapists, orthopedic surgeons can't reliably, you know, osteopaths, whatever, can't reliably 
agree on whether someone's scapula is upwardly rotated, downwardly rotated, you know, or whatever. It's like, and you think that'd be pretty easy, right? So something like, you know, is the scapula, you know, tilted or whatever, we can't agree on. So like, how can you tell if somebody's, quote, initiating movement from their core? You know, it's just like, a, it's such a esoteric concept that, yeah, it's almost like a spiritual kind of thing, you know, I, I, and I don't mean that. I guess what I mean by that is like when I learned Kung Fu way, way, way back in the day, you know, 30 plus years ago, I learned Qigong and I learned, you know, lots of sort of moving meditations and things. And I, you know, I believed that I could feel and perceive, you know, the chi, the life force, you know, running, you know, through my body. And I was taught to move the chi around and use that for striking and defending and all uh, but I was just, I was just kidding myself. You know, I was just hallucinating basically. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know where I'm going with that, but yeah. So I feel like that if we are, if we are sort of basing our tests on like, oh, can you stabilize your scapula or can you continuously initiate, initiate from your core? Right. It's like, well, well one of the problems, yeah, how the fuck do we measure that? Yeah. One of the problems that I come across too in, in the work that I do where I have to teach students about neutral or imprint. And, you know, before, technically, before I advance them, they need to be able to know the difference and be able to demonstrate it. And, you know, at this point in my <clears throat> my trajectory, I don't worry about stuff like neutral and imprint. I do, I mention it if people talk about it and, you know, uh-huh. It's they're getting mixed messages. That's also the that's also to me part of the problem, right? With gatekeeping is that when you have these yeah, when you have yeah. these prerequisites, you're working with human beings and you yourself are is a human being next to the next teacher who might be also doing an assessment who's a human being. And these poor clients are just so confused about neutral right. spine. I remember um a couple of months yeah. ago before I went on medical leave, one of my students just said out loud in class while we were while we were while they were moving, should I be in neutral? And I said to her, you can be in whatever spinal position you want to be. We were supine, doing supine arms and straps. She's like, should I be in neutral? And I said, oh, you can be in whatever you want to be. And she just, I mean, she looked at me like I had two heads just because, right? Because she hadn't come to my class before and she'd been to everybody else who said, you must be in neutral. And I wasn't going to grade her on that. And I didn't have a good answer for her. Anyway, it's just stuff like that. Isn't it funny that, and what strikes me about that, because I've had that experience as well, <clears throat> excuse me, is that, well, if she's been in these classes with other people and they're like, every time they do say arms pulling straps, you know, supine, they've said to her, make sure you're in neutral spine. Okay. And say so she's had that experience 99 times or whatever number of times she's done arms in straps. And then she comes to your class and she's doing the exact same moves, arms in straps, right? She's been More. literally told it like 99 times or whatever number, right? <laughs> it's like, well, how, how many, you know, like, I don't know, how many times do, do you need that instruction before you just go, oh, yeah, I get it. That's part of this exercise, right? And so I think, and this is not a, uh, this is not a criticism of that client because I think, you know, what has happened, because this happened to lots of clients with me, is that we basically have trained her, you know, when I say we, it's the royal we, you know, the, the generic we, have trained her and and others to, you know, seek permission to move, or, you know, 
okay, I know you've told me the previous yeah. 99 times that I need to be neutral, but what should I do today? You know, like, why can't we just, like, why Why wouldn't it just be like day one, you show them the exercise and then, you know, maybe on day 15 you go, oh, yeah. by the way, you know, move your knee a bit to the left, that's better. Okay, you know, give them a bit of a tweak, you know. Uh, but it's like, why would you need to give them the same instruction that you give them on day one, like every single time? And then if you fail to give them that instruction yeah. on class 100, they're like, oh, fuck. Well, it makes I sense. I don't know how to do the exercise. you're – working within a milieu that has a lot of gatekeeping because arguably we, the instructors, are the gatekeepers. And the these students are really just checking. Right. She was yeah. she wasn't yeah, yeah. asking me about neutral. She was asking me if she was doing it right. correctly. The, yes. Doing it right. Yes. 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 And she she and and again, like I don't mean to in any way insinuate she, you know, was bad or dumb or anything like that. She yeah. was behaving you know, yeah. to the best of her ability, she wanted to fit into the cultural norms of the of that class. And we all have different cultural norms. Like, you know, when you are at a barbecue with your family, it's okay to, if you're a man, have your shirt off. But when you're at the office, it's generally not okay to have your shirt off. You know, so we have different behaviors in different cultural, you know, in different situations. And we, you know, probably talk to our mum differently than we talk to our best friend from high school or whatever, you know. Um, so, so we, you know, we all put on kind of different masks or different hats or however you want to term it in different situations. It's like when you're in a Pilates class, you know, one of the hats you, one of the hats you might put on is like, okay, waiting for instruction from the, from the trainer before you decide whether you're in neutral yeah. spine or imprint or whatever. So that's just a cultural yeah. meme. You know, um. Mm. A funny thing happened to me on the way to the studio, actually, uh, talking about talking about uh, cultural memes and <laughs> gatekeeping. Uh, and I, you know, please don't let me spend more than five minutes on this because I, you know, I want to keep on topic mostly. But um, you know, we were setting up to do this podcast today on, and we booked this in weeks or possibly even mm-hmm. months ago um, on gatekeeping in Pilates. And uh, this week, like I don't know everything before two hours ago is, is a haze to me at all times. But, you know, sometime in the last few days, I made a post on Instagram, which I do five or six times a week. And uh, to my extreme surprise, slight bewilderment and several other, you know, bits of different mixed emotions thrown in, there was essentially like a, a shitstorm, I think is the the correct, uh, I'm not sure if that, is that a verb or a noun or an adjective or an ad, adverb, but... <laughs> The correct label. <laughs> um, and the post was, uh, as you know, Natalie, uh, it was about Pilates business, which is, you know, one of the things I post about, I post about Pilates and rehab right. and anatomy and Pilates business. Those are the things that I post about. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I post a photo of my dog or something, but yeah, basically <laughs> that's what I post about. I never post about like politics or, you know, other stuff because of course I've got views on other things, but it's like, well, that's not what people follow me for. And you know, I talk about that at, you know, at dinner with my wife, but not on social media. Um, and so this post uh, said, uh, uh, why you shouldn't make your classes accessible to everyone. And it, then it talked about, um, you know, instead of, you know, trying to be all things to all people, find your ideal client, you know, decide what, you know, who you serve and what problem you solve for that, that person. And then, you know, attract them and say, hey, I solved this specific problem for this specific, you know, person. And uh, wouldn't that be great if you could, you know, have only clients that you really enjoyed working with because you like working with athletes or pregnant women or whatever it might be. 
Uh, and I thought, you know, I, I, I have to admit, I was aiming to be a little provocative with the title of the post because I do see a lot of people saying, posting on social media saying, oh, my classes are accessible to everyone. And what I've since learned is that that word has a, a quite a radically mm. different set of connotations in different parts of the world. Um, but, you know, to me, when I see that accessible to everyone, the meaning that leaps into my mind is like, right. oh, I'm all things to all people. Yeah. You know, like come one, come one, come all. And, you know, business training 101, you know, day one of your MBA, you know, the first yeah. thing they teach you is, you know, you've got to niche down, you know, you've got to you know, focus your uh, attention on one particular type of client and one particular problem. So I, I'm using the word accessible in the sense of like to make easy to understand or use, you know, for your clients. Um, whereas, of course, there's another meaning of accessible in the dictionary, which is to be able to be easily used by people with different ability status. And, uh, you know, I thought that the post was like, I mean, it didn't even cross my mind that there was anything to do with disabilities. Like it just wasn't part of my consciousness <laughs> when making that post. I thought I was being a bit provocative using the word accessible because I'd seen other people use it. But honestly, I did not anticipate the tsunami of, you know, uh, and, and really, okay, it's not really a tsunami. It's it's a very small number of people who got quite irate about it. But um, yeah, it's, it surprised me quite a bit. And I think the the learning for me there is um, that in America, because I think most of these people are in America that are sort of irate about this, in America, that word has a lot more emotional kind of overtones than it does in Australia. In Australia and in the UK, I've had a lot of people message me from the UK going like, what's everyone so upset about <laughs> that post for? I don't get it. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So that, that was, that's been a surprise to me. And the reason I mentioned that is because uh, you know, one right. of the comments yeah. on that accused yeah. me of gatekeeping and being a no. It was such a weird thing. Pilates. I um, yeah. I saw that post. Well, let's preface this by saying I am a brown woman <laughs> living in a very white city. I work. Fifty percent of my clientele have pretty serious medical needs. I don't like to use the word disabilities because they are so able in so many ways. They just have different needs. They have, you know, some of them have canes and walkers and they can't feel their feet. They have lots of stuff going on. I read that post and I knew exactly what the spirit of that post was, which was I need to find my niche. I need to find my specialty. Um, I think I, I made a comment on that post three days later when everything kind of blew up that before I found my specialty, I was dying. I didn't think I could, I was totally burned out because I was trying to be everything to everybody. And so for me, having those reminders are really important because I can't be everything to everybody, nor do I want to be. I just, I don't, <laughs> I don't have enough time. I'm not smart enough to do to be everything to everybody. So that post was, I saw it, I gave you a heart and I moved on with my life. And then three days later, this whole thing blew up. And I did mm. think that it was really um, mm. ironically time timely, <laughs> ironic and timely that we're talking about gatekeeping yeah. because it just never, it, it, you know, I, I guess maybe the first thing to say is I, I, 
language does matter. And, and I, you know, um, that was probably a hard, that was a hard lesson because I know that that's not what you were aiming for. And I knew that within the first three seconds of me finishing the post that you, that you posted. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't see it that way. And I think most people didn't see it that way, but yeah, I think that, that, um, the, the word accessible really is, uh, loaded, right. It's loaded because there's a, there's just Mm. a lot of stuff happening Mm. right now, especially in the United States in terms of accessibility, like the whole abortion thing. I try not to be political, um, with Mm. my Instagram. I do that more on Facebook, but you know, there are definitely some issues like a woman's right, a woman's right to her own body. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and healthcare, let's just say that like, abortions, right. you know, it, for me, abortion is just part of healthcare and there's so many other things that, that are at stake mm. when you take away a woman's right to choose. So there's, I, I think that that mm. word choice mm. I don't know, maybe maybe if you had used that word last year, it wouldn't have been so bad. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I think, I, you know, and I take it on board, that's lesson learned, it's like um, about that particular word. But, um, you know, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, how the words change their emotional valence over yeah. time. And like you said, you know, if a year ago, maybe that would have not, not even been a blip, you know. Um, and yet, yeah. so words change their kind of how emotionally charged they are. Um, uh, but yeah, anyway, so lesson learned and, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, okay. let's move on. Let's heart that and, and move on. So gatekeeping in Pilates, you know, like I, I'm going to make Please a, I'm going to make a, a case. Yeah, because I'm on the fence. Forward. Um, Okay. Well, yeah, I'm, I kind of see it both ways. I, I I agree with everything that you've said so far and some of the things I've said as well, but uh, I also think that, well, if I'm teaching a, you know, an intermediate class, for example, and, you know, part of that is I expect people to, you know, we're going to have quick transitions. We're go, you know, I'm just going to call it, hey, everyone, footwork, three springs, go. And it's like, I'm not going to say, okay, now come off your reformer, take the red spring, put it on the thing, you know, put your foot bar all the way up. No, that all the way up. No, here's how you put your foot bar up, you know. Like, so I'm not, I'm just going to go, hey, bam, footwork, teaser, this, 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 you know. And so it's like, well, if, if I, if I get someone in that class who doesn't know that, that jargon and doesn't know those moves and doesn't know how to adjust the machine. It's like, that is going to be a serious pain up the butt for me as a teacher and for all the other clients, because I'm always helping this person fumbling to try and get the reformer box on or off or whatever. So I was like, I think there's a, there really is a a case for like, no, you need to know the moves and the instructions and how to adjust the machine and whatever before you can come to intermediate class or whatever level of class, because like, otherwise you're just fucking dragging everybody else back, you know, and, and hogging the teacher's attention yeah. to show you the basic adjustments to the machine that you should have figured out in the beginner class. I agree with you 110%. And that is my only prerequisite. Mm-hmm. So I ignore everything else, all of the other prerequisites when I teach. And I say to my beginner students, it doesn't matter to me if you're a Pilates teacher and you're coming from another studio and you're taking my class. I'd like for you to 
do as many beginner classes as you need to, to learn the equipment that we're using and then move on. Right. And so the equipment is really important. The transitions can be really important too, because a lot of the transitions have to do with equipment changes. Yeah. So what I tell my beginner students is my only job as your teacher in a beginner level class is to give you a very challenging workout, but do so in a way that you can learn the equipment really, really well. And also my other um, expectation is for you to have a decent understanding of how to use the equipment and how to approach exercises that you can modify or personalize them for you if you happen to have an injury mm-hmm. or a medical condition. Because I teach a group class, I'm not going to be able to give you the kind of attention that you need if you, um, if, if everybody or even if a few people had injuries, like part of my job in a, to me in a beginner level class is to be able to get people comfortable with um, how I structure the class so that they understand how to take care of themselves best and to be able to troubleshoot exercises um, on their own eventually. Like that, that's mm-hmm. the goal to me in a beginner level class. So I agree with you. I think that's really important. And I, I, I think maybe where I struggle... Where I struggle is that a lot of these studios, and like I said, I looked at four or five of them. I printed them out. They all don't, they just, they're all different. They don't really make any Mm. sense. There's a lot of um, ambiguous terms. And I want to, I mean, it really makes me wonder like, okay, can we just be honest about why we do this? Because the, the stated reason is that we are essentially telling clients we level these classes for your own good for your own good when really i think we can kind of turn that around and say we level these classes because instructors are not prepared to teach an open level class right makes it easier if everybody's at the similar level makes it easier for the teacher yeah exactly so it's not i mean but every, we're never going to like studios don't say that, right? Like it's not going to say, well, we level these classes for your own good. What it says is we level these classes so that you can have a personalized, um, the, the most optimal personalized fitness journey or whatever. Um, when really it's, to me, it's just about classroom management and chaos. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to lob that uh, serve back, back at you. Yeah. And say that I don't think it's I don't think it's in any way cynical and disingenuous disingenuous. Like I don't think it's teachers sitting around going, oh, 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 our evil plans are just to um, have an easy class to teach, but let's you know let's pull the wool over those you know sheeple's eyes and <laughs> tell them that it's for their own good. <laughs> I know that's not what you were suggesting, no. but I don't think I don't think there's any I don't think there's any malfeasance or any disingenuousness there. I actually think that if an instructor and there I've known many instructors, I think most instructors, you know, when when I used to own studios, you know, we had to teach ourselves and then all of our instructors how to do this is how to run an open level class with different levels of ability within the same room. And you might have someone who's pregnant and someone who's got a knee injury and someone who's their first day and someone who's done 99 classes. And so how do you, 
you know, give a good session for all of those people. So they all work out, walk out going, wow, what an awesome class. That was exactly the right level of intensity, ability, stretch, you know, personal attention, whatever. And that's definitely a, you know, a skill and, and, you know, there's sets of processes that you can do and ways you can layer things and stuff in your programming. Um, and, and so I didn't always know that. And I think that, you know, trying to think back to when I didn't know how to do that, it's like, well, I didn't even know that it was possible to do that. I just thought that it's like, it's really fucking difficult yeah. teaching when you've got people of different abilities yes, it is. and it means that I can't give like my full attention to people and I can't give the best class to everyone. Right. So for their own good, let's lump all the beginners together in one group and lump all the intermediate people in, in one group and all the pregnant women in another group and, you know. And that way they will, they will in fact get a better class, right? So it, it actually is for their own good. And it's also because the instructor needs to up-level their skills. So really my secret motive that's not secret anymore about having this discussion with you on air for everybody is to implore training organizations to teach teachers how to teach an open-level class. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, let's level them up right now. How do you teach an open level class? Let's save them the trouble. Okay. Uh, you can. There are many ways. Well, hold on. Hold, mm -hmm. So, hold on. Are mm -hmm. we just about to solve this whole gatekeeping problem? <laughs> no, like, because. Is, is this it? <laughs> I don't want to be a gatekeeper for gatekeeping. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody can have right. sovereignty over their own teaching practice. Okay. <laughs> Well, let's just say we're about to offer one potential solution for some people yeah. that may or may not okay. give any value. Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll just, I'll just, I'll take you through my, my class that I teach for at the hospital. So I teach a, I teach a mat and props class at a hospital here in Seattle. These people mostly have multiple sclerosis. So if you have ever met somebody with multiple sclerosis, you'll know that they have issues with balance. They have uh, spasticity in their muscles. They have really, um, they might have one strong side and one weak side. They are sensitive to overexertion, all these sorts of things. It's just a lot. Having multiple sclerosis is a big deal for some people. And in my class, of, there's typically between eight to 10 people in my class, and they all they all come in with their own stuff. They all have different abilities and um, they all have and different- multiple sclerosis. I mean, I don't know your particular group, but it tends to go through uh, relapsing and remissions. So you, you might have like a long period of time where you've got no symptoms or very little symptoms and then, you know, get symptoms. And the symptoms often come back in different spots. So you might have leg weakness one time and then nothing for three months and then now your arms don't work or, yeah. you know, something. So, so it's highly variable a lot of the time. Yeah, it is really different. And one of the things that I love about the class that I teach, and because it's a group class, we spend time before and after class and people can talk about what's going on in their bodies. And it's, you know, they, they're able to troubleshoot with each other um, and talk about what's happening. And for my new students who have been, by new, I mean my newly diagnosed students, it's, they're such a resource. It's such a resource for them to be able to talk to people who have lived with it for a really long time. So when I teach this class, it's eight to 10 people. They all come in with their own stuff. And a lot of what I'm doing is providing exercises in layers. 
And that's a lot of it. It's just progressive layers. So we start off with a layer that every single person can do, which sometimes is hard. I actually have some students who can't feel their feet. So if you think about, for instance, like if I, if you wanted to teach a bridge, supine feet on the ground, you know, rolling up to a bridge, I have a student who I've been teaching. This is a great, I, this is a great uh, example of what I mean about my ambivalence with gatekeeping. I have a student who I've been working with for probably five years. She knows exactly what I want when I say, let's do a bridge. She needs to essentially press her feet into the ground and roll up. She can't feel her feet. So do I just continue to classify her as a beginner Pilates practitioner because she can't do a bridge, but she knows what needs to happen, right? But anyway, I digress. You wanted to know how I teach an open level class, but that's my, that's yeah, my right. point. Right. So just, uh, I, I don't know. And this is one of the things like, uh, just, you know, with regards to what I said a minute ago about when I posted in this word, like, um, accessible has, it has the same dictionary meaning in Australia and the US, but I think it has very different kind of emotional connotations. And I think we make different meanings from it when we hear it like uh, maybe that's the case well it wasn't the case for you so i don't know anyway i'm, I'm profoundly ignorant <laughs> about that is my, my real realization but my other realization is that i think we have you know a lot of these cultural differences and so now coming back to the the, the bridge and and all this are you know are hidden in plain sight and so what you know in australia here we watch a lot of u.s movies and television and news and social media all that so we think you know we grew up with u.s culture like we know you know, of you know about US. I know you guys drive on the wrong side of the road. And <laughs> fire hydrants look weird, and you know all kinds of stuff. Um, wait, wait, wait. There are so wait, many things. What do you mean our fire hydrants look weird? Oh, uh, they just look like like fire hydrants out of a cartoon, whereas ours look like actual fire hydrants. Okay, I'm going to have to Google that. <laughs> um, and you know, so many little things like this that uh, you know, when I go to America, I feel like, oh, I'm in the movies. It's because like all of these like classic, you know, things like a brownstone in New York. Like mm. we just don't have that. There's nothing, there's no analog of that in Australia. Mm. Okay. And so even if you're just on some random street in New York, that's never been in a movie. You feel like, Oh, I'm like in the movies because yeah. like, look, there's, you know, <laughs> there's a yellow cab, you know, all of that stuff. So anyway, but I think that we, another thing that has, you know, that I'm not sure if falls into that category is the word layers. So that's something we use a lot at breathe education. And that's just part of our kind of jargon. I don't know if that's a word that other people in the world all make the same meaning when they hear that word. So can you just unpack that yeah. uh, that that term? So when I think of layers, I think of an exercise and how do I break up that exercise into meaningful steps or bites? So <clears throat> a bridge is not a super good example because – it's just one movement. But for instance, if you take, let's say, rowing, front rowing or back rowing on the reformer, it is an exercise that is broken up into many, many different bits of choreography. And you could even go, you could even go deeper than that, right? Like you could before the choreography, you can talk about just the shapes, you know, like mm -hmm. the C shape or Right, so um, the C-shape in back rowing, round mm -hmm. back, like, you, like cat stretch could be a right. beginning layer of that. Right. So I think the whole idea of layering an exercise and giving people options, which I think is another good way of teaching an open-level class, is mm. uh, 
it does take practice because you as the instructor gets to decide how how much you're going to break up an exercise and how you plan to teach that and whether you teach it in a sequence or if you're just going to break it up into random bits and then somehow put it all together. I tend to do things in sequences. Uh, so to me, a layer is just breaking down an exercise into very small bite-sized parts. And hopefully the goal is to start with a foundational layer that every single person in your class mm -hmm. can do. And then from there, try to build on to that exercise and, and allow people the option of staying with the pr a prior step or a prior layer or moving along with you until such time they're pooped out or you're pooped out right. and it's time to move right. on. Um, but right. being able to and that's a skill, right? Being able to look at an exercise and break it down. And, and you know, I feel like in, in your conventional or traditional Pilates training, you are already doing that. You, there, I think that a lot of teaching programs do teach things in progressions. A progression, I think, would be another way to think about a layer is maybe um, before you do a teaser, think about all the little all the other exercises that you can do in order to progress to doing a teaser. Whereas so teaser with two feet on the ground, teaser with one foot on the ground, teaser with, you know, knees bent, et cetera. Exactly. Teaser with a flex band. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So in, in the way that I would prefer to teach is if I am going to offer, if I'm going to, if I decide that I want to teach teaser in class, it's not going to be okay. Everybody, you know, roll back, lift your feet up or whatever. It's not going to be just teaching them teaser. We're going to do a lot of other things to build up to the mm -hmm. teaser. And this mm -hmm. allows students who, this allows students to be able to practice all of the steps that before. And those students who are not, who I know are not going to be able to do teaser yet can still participate because right. I've been in situations before, before I knew how to do this, where I would want to do something. I haven't done this a lot, but I feel like there have been times when I'm teaching an exercise and I've said to somebody, if this exercise isn't accessible to you, ding, I use the word, um, just do a bridge. You didn't trigger me. That's right. <laughs> I, I understood you meant, you meant no ill. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. That's that's what I think of teaching people at an open level yeah. is and is that is that a is that a concept like layers that is is everybody out there going like I roll fuck ref you know we know what fucking layers are you know <laughs> like or is is that a blind spot for me? What do you mean? Like is layers a, 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 you know is that word that concept layers is that a thing everywhere? Oh, or is, is this shoot? I don't. I don't know. know if it's a word that we made up or if it's like been in use for hundreds of years or. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, hmm. I feel like in my training, in my original training, it might have been progressions. Mm -hmm. But we never learned we never learned the exercise, the full exercise. The way that I was trained, right. you would spend a weekend doing beginner repertoire mm -hmm. and then uh, we would okay. go into yeah, intermediate. Right. It was never I think that's yeah. I think that's the difference. That was the same with mine, because I learned, you know, when you learn stop pilates, you learn the beginner repertoire in a weekend, then you learn the intermediate repertoire in a different weekend. Mm. 
Yeah. And so you never really get to join the dots, you know, exactly. in between those things. And I think the difference in the, with the concept of layers is you teach the whole progression from, you know, if we're thinking about, say, shoulder bridge, the very, very early layer might be like just, you know, um, pelvic tucks or mm-hmm. something like lying sure. on your back, knees bent, yeah. you know, imprint to release sort of thing. And then the, the, the extreme version at the other end might be like, you know, one leg circle in shoulder bridge, you know, one foot on a foam roller sort yeah. of thing, you know. Yeah. So, and there'd be like, you know, eight or 10 steps or layers in between those two ends of the of the ladder. And uh, so the difference with layers is basically in a group class, you would teach the whole sequence. You yeah. Know, okay, everybody, we're going to start with pelvic curls. Okay, great. Keep doing pelvic curls. Three, two, one. Okay, now we're going to lift your pelvis up to your, up to, you know, almost knee height. Okay. Lower down, lift up, and 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 then you'd move. Okay, now lift one leg off the floor, keep the knee bent, lower it back down, and you'll just then gradually progress and progress and progress. And the great thing about this is, like you say, it make you start with an exercise that everyone can do. Like you're 100 percent certain. Like yeah, okay, everyone can do imprint. You know, mm-hmm. in this in this room, uh, and then you you get to use the progression or the layering as a partly as an assessment as well, because you're watching. Like okay, how's this person doing with with this exercise, and, oh, they look like they're struggling. Maybe this is the maybe this is the right level of challenge for this person. They don't need the next level, or maybe oh, this person looks like they're doing it really easy. You know, maybe we need another. I need to add another layer, um, and so you get to use it as an assessment as well as just really uh, empowering people to just progress. And I, I, I wouldn't. I guess you know that as I said that, I thought like, oh, that's almost like gatekeeping, saying, oh, this person's not ready for the next level. And I guess when, when I teach, I wouldn't ever say to somebody, oh, I don't think you should do this version. I think you should go back to the easier version, unless it was something like a balance thing where I, I was watching them going, oh, shit, you're definitely <laughs> in a re- risk of falling over yeah. and breaking an arm or something. Um, you know, unless there was like a, a serious safety consideration there. Um, like, I don't know, you're a lady who can't feel her feet, you know, standing on a BOSU or something, I'd be like, oh, I'm not, not sure about that. Um, but apart from, you know, serious safety considerations aside, I, I would like, if somebody was doing the shoulder bridge with the one leg circle and I was looking and their pelvis was shimmying all over the place and their knees were, I'd be like, okay, great. Do you reckon you could push your knee a bit to the left yeah. more? No? Okay, great. Fine. Keep going. You're right. You know? <laughs> yeah. I would agree with you. And yeah, I no longer, I feel like there probably was a time where I did probably say to somebody, you should stay at this level. And I, I mm-hmm. that's long gone. I don't do that anymore. I just feel like. That's your equivalent of my 1970s period. <laughs> like, have you got any photos of you doing that? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I guess the way that I see it is the calculus that I'm doing in my head is who is it going to hurt? What is the damage if somebody decides to try a layer that they're not ready yeah. for? Well, Mul- I think it becomes a victimless becomes a victimless crime. You know, like yeah. there's no no harm is is done. <laughs> there's no harm, and it's good for them. And you know, the thing that that I just I learned so much from teaching uh, this class. I I I feel like I could just talk about them all day long. I learned so much from them because they are fearless. They are motivated to get stronger and to um, to learn new things. And they are hungry for new challenges. So mm. the benefit of teaching a full exercise with the intention of starting small and trying to work our way to the grand finale, whatever that looks like in that moment, is for, for those students 
by and large for those students who are not yet there, they want to see it. They want to see either me doing it. It's inspiring to people. Right. They want to know what that end goal is. And I, and that's the thing to me with the whole gatekeeping part, which I really struggle with because for my students, and I'll give the example again of my student who can't feel her feet. I tell her, you are an advanced student. You've been with me for the last five years. You know exactly what needs to happen. And it's by no fault of yours that your bridge looks incredibly wobbly or that when, um, when I do say, get your foam roller, put your feet on the foam roller and let's do a bridge, she will give it her best shot and she will, it doesn't work out for her, but that doesn't make her (laughs) a beginner (laughs) student. That's just, so that's, and, and that to me is one of the things, right. With the whole gatekeeping is that Oftentimes, based on the prerequisites that the studios are posting about what what makes a beginner, intermediate, and advanced, it is very, I mean, since we're talking about accessibility, it is very ableist in a lot of ways. And, you know, it's ableist. There are some people who for different reasons cannot do even tabletop, right? Like we've, we've, you've met people and talked to people about tabletop is a hard position for certain people just based on how their, their bodies are shaped. That doesn't mean that they are relegated to the beginner level class for the ends of time because they can't feel their feet or they can't do a nice bridge, a beautiful bridge, right? right? Like that to me is where I see like the bigger issue is that it is very ableist because a lot of the, the prerequisites are really about mastering choreography and, and, and that to me is an aesthetic thing. Right. And, And not even, I mean, even aside from, you know, uh, people with different abilities, maybe you know, adaptive athletes or whatever you might have, like just people on the normal spectrum of height, weight, flexibility, pelvic structure, whatever. Um, a lot, you know, like we said at the start, like some people's like can like I can easily do one-handed push-ups, but I can't roll up to save my life. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, and then. When I was learning all the, on all the equipment, it's like I realized that, oh, this equipment was made for people who were like five foot one, you know, like the ladder barrel or something. Mm. It's like, you know, how do you do a backbend over the ladder barrel? I've never been able to get both my head and my sacrum on the barrel at the same time. It's just, it's it's too small for me. Now, I'm, I'm not extremely flexible. I'm, you know, moderately flexible in my spine, but there are people, if, if I was like 12 inches shorter- you know, if I was five foot instead of six foot, no problem. I'd be able to lie back. I'd be like, oh, this is such a beautiful, gorgeous exercise, such a great spine stretch. But when I get on the ladder bar, I'm like, oh, I fucking hate it. It's torture. Yeah. You know, I can't get into the position. And I think it's partly because I'm a bit stiff, but mostly just because I'm the wrong size yeah. for that piece of equipment. Okay. So you were saying in the workshop today that, shoot, I'm going to mess it up. But something like, you said something about, not actually being good at Pilates. Yeah, you you and that? I did put air quotes around it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. Yeah, it's not something that ever I lose a moment to sleep over. Yeah. It's not something I worry about. Well, but, I mean, I guess you it, know, if I went, if I went to Pilates Olympics, right. I wouldn't place in the top three. Let's say. I guess I bring that up because you know you've been teaching it forever, so arguably, you must be good at Pilates because 
you you're teaching it. So, but that's what I'm saying. It's problematic to have these arbitrary. Yes, yes. yes. To have these arbitrary prerequisites. Well, I guess if I came to your studio and you had to triage me into, you know, do I know my Pilates principles, I wouldn't, I wouldn't back myself to, to pass the test. You know, I might be, I might be pulled up and gone, yeah, no, you need to do a few more lessons on <laughs> core activation or <laughs> something, you know. Like, I mean. So I just think, yeah, it's, 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 and the thing this, you know, this is what Laura, echoing what Laura Cruz uh, said is that it's like, well, yeah, you can, you can have people that because of body shape, dimensions, right. you know, height, weight, you know, flexibility, whatever it might be. It's like some exercises are super easy and some exercises are super hard. And it's not because they're like particularly good or bad. At this. It's like I can do back rowing on two springs, no problem, but I can't do long stretch on one spring for more than like three reps because I just die yeah. uh, figuratively just because I've weighed freaking a hundred kilos. And so one spring just is enough support mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, and I think other people, you know, who have different, you know, body lengths, different body segment lengths, different weight, different height, whatever it might be, a different width of body segments as well is is a thing relative to where the, the rises are and the pulleys and stuff. It's like, yeah, the, these exercises aren't equally easy for everybody, you know. And so, there are some people that on their first day never done, never been a dancer, never done a lick of Pilates before, they can do teasers. Yeah. You know, just because I've got a lot of weight in there you know, midsection and not a lot at their extremities where other people are going to struggle, struggle with it on year five because they've got freaking heavy legs and a heavy torso. Right. You know? Well, and that, you know, back to my, the point about it having very arbitrary uh, prerequisites is if you were to come to my studio, I would stick you in my beginner level class because you would need at yeah. least one class to be able to become familiar with the equipment. And then you yeah, could move on. You don't have, do you, do you have Allegro twos? No. Is that what you've got? Mm-mm. I hate those. I can't. I can't get the foot bars to work on them. You know, they're the ones with the foot bars that go all the way up from one end to the other. I know, like, those are I, so beautiful. Everyone and else fun. is adjusting it. <laughs> I'm just still like trying to figure out how to unlock the fucking thing. I can't. Can't get it to move. No, I don't even know what kind of brand of reformer I teach on. Honestly, I feel like maybe mm, I have no idea. Maybe they're peak or they they're emulating peak reformers. I have no idea. Hey, I want to give a quick, just um, quick PSA. Uh, it um, maybe it feels to me like we're coming towards the end of the conversation. You know, maybe you disagree, and there's more to say here. But just while it while it's top of mind, uh, we're talking about Pilates equipment. Like, I get a lot of people DMing me saying, "Hey, have you heard of XYZ brand of Pilates equipment, or what's a good brand of reformer to buy?" And I have to say, my answer is I don't really know because, like, you know, back in my day, you know, pre-pandemic. There were really only like three or four brands of equipment. You know, Stott, there was Peak, there was Balanced Body, you know, one or two others. Um, and, you know, so, and I tried all of those and I've got views on all of those pieces of equipment. But now, since the pandemic, there is like a proliferation. There, there must be like dozens or if not scores of brands of reformers, Cadillacs, et cetera, that have they've popped up. And it's like, I don't even know the names of half of them let alone have tried them or whatever. So I don't have a view on that. And I, I'm excited by all of the new equipment that's popping up. And a lot of it's really looks looks great from what I've seen, you know, just pictures and whatever. And also it looks, you know, really brilliantly priced. And that's one thing that I always hated about buying the stop plates equipment because one, it was they made us buy it in US dollars and it's always been a shit exchange rate here in Australia. And also they shipped it from freaking Toronto. So it was made in China, shipped from China to Toronto. You know, and then like back, basically back past China to Australia. <laughs> <And> so, 
where the ship, it was like, you know, this machine's only $2,000. Oh, in Australian dollars, that's four and a half thousand. Oh, our plus shipping, that's 9,000. You know, so it's like, oh my God. <laughs> I'm just making up those numbers, but, um, you know, if the, the shipping ended up being more than the actual price of the equipment a lot of the time. So I'm really excited. A lot of this equipment is coming out of China and you can get it shipped directly to you from China. Um, I don't have a view on the quality of any of it. I would love it if you uh, out there, dear listener, um, have tried some of these new innovative brands. Um, a couple I'm aware of, like Reformers Australia, Vault. Um, those are the ones that I just sort of spring to mind, but I'm sure there's dozens of others. If you've tried them and love them or hate them, um, yeah, uh, reach out to me on Instagram or as a DM or uh, yeah, just send me an email. I think you can, I'm not sure if you can email me through. Yeah, so maybe just DM me on Instagram. Um, I'd love to know your views and your experiences with that new equipment. But um, if you want to reach out to me and ask for advice on equipment, my honest answer is I don't know. I'm going to jump on the soapbox because I bought a reformer to do the certificate program with you. And I wanted a balanced body, but the wait time was eight to 10 weeks and I needed one in six. So I ended up getting a Marathew Stott reformer and I got it because number one, it was available. And number two, I could get it on Amazon free shipping two days. <laughs> uh, but here's what I want to say about my reformer. And I'm hoping maybe somebody from Mary Thee will hear this. The box is too big for the bed and that is wrong. <laughs> yeah, have you got an SPX reformer? Oh, I don't know. It's the uh, one that's low to the ground. That yeah, might be it. SPX. Yeah. I've got the same one. I've got the same issue. And the foot, I don't know, mine's much older than yours, but uh, the foot on mine, the foot bar doesn't go all the way down. Like when it's all the way down, it's not flat. It's on a very slight angle. Mm -hmm. So if you put the box crossways across the rails, like if you're doing like a plank with elbows on the box yeah. or something, right? Um, the box isn't fucking flat and that just annoys the shit out of me. But anyway. You know, that's you might be right on that. I don't, You yeah, I think you're right. I think it is just, a, it creates a lip. On the, on but the platform. having said that, and I don't want to give uh, Stott equipment a bad rap per se. We use them in our studio for a decade and they are strong as fuck. Like they really yeah. last the distance. And if you're running a commercial facility and you, you know, it's like, who cares about the freaking thing going flat? It's like, I need an equipment that I don't have to reupholster every 12 months and, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. It's like, they're, they're, they were tanks, you know, the ones that went, you know, my machine now is like 15 years old, still going strong. I don't know how they are these days, but the ones that I've used, I've all been really good quality. Yeah, mine is great. Apart from the the long box that's too long for the bed and the the loops, the biggest loop doesn't fit very nicely onto the shoulder blocks. But those are my only two... What? complaints when we when we first uh, went online um at the start of the pandemic we you know did a deal with an australian company here to create this home reform because at the time home reformers were like three thousand dollars it's like no way is someone going to pay, pay that so we we did this deal and they managed to create one that was under a thousand dollars delivered you know to anywhere in australia and and so this was amazing it was it, you know it had bungees on it instead of springs and stuff but it was like this is like a thousand dollar reformer delivered you know which yeah. was amazing in australia Delivery is like ten, not ten thousand. The delivery is like two thousand dollars, you know, from anywhere in the world because we're so fucking mm -hmm. far from everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. Um, so this was like a free plus shipping sort of deal. Um, and uh, but they because to to get it under that price point, we had to keep the package so small, like it was so tight the constraints that we had this mini box that was like 
it must have been like 10 inches by six inches by four inches. It was a tiny, it was the size of a shoebox, literally the size of a shoebox. <laughs> and we thought, oh no, that'll be fine. You know, we could do teaser on that. That'll be right. <laughs> and of course, no, you couldn't, you couldn't do yeah. teaser. Students were like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> and we're in there tutorials going, okay, everybody get out your long box. <laughs> My little students would bring out this poxy little box. I'd be like, I've only got this thing. <laughs> oh, those poor buggers. That's so funny. I need to, I actually have, I have a little Zoom date with my Australian friends on Thursday. I'm going to have to ask, I think one of them, Wendy, shout out Wendy. She just started her own little business. I'm so excited for her. Um, she had one of those little reformers. I'm going to have to ask her to show me her box. Mm. <laughs> make sure you don't say it in a way that she's not going to take it out of context that's all I've, that's the only advice i've got for yeah. you <laughs> um, um is there anything else that you feel needs to be said on uh, gatekeeping now that, i mean we basically have solved uh, some portion of the world's problems with the use of layers and just using layers to so basically you know to choreograph your program your class you just go hey i'm going to do a you know, progression slash layers of, say, shoulder bridge, then a progression slash layers of, you know, leg pull, then a progression slash layers of, you know, side bends or whatever. And you just go, okay, bam, there's my class for 45 minutes. Yeah. You know? That was the so, other thing about layering that I think is so awesome is that you end up essentially remembering less exercises because you're taking yeah. one exercise and spreading it out and extending it for right. a very long period of time. And that's just a, a really awesome hack, right? Because I remember right. when I wasn't layering, you know, that's like 18 exercises I was trying to remember for a 50-minute right. class. It's really only three exercises. It's just like shoulder bridge, leg pull, and side bend, and there's your whole class. Yeah. And, and, you know, in reality, they've done like, you know, I mean, you could argue that they've done 18 exercises, but like six of them were just some version of shoulder bridge, and six of them were just some version of leg pull. Yeah. So... Um, or leg pull front or whatever I said. Yeah, so I think it's a great hack as well yeah. and it, it really simplifies programming. You can program, you can literally program in like 30 seconds, yeah. you know, a whole class. You just go, okay, what's a front exercise, a back exercise and a side exercise? Okay, great, done. <laughs> I think the only other thing about gatekeeping too is the idea that the rationale for gatekeeping has to do with keeping clients safe. But I, I, mm. I really feel like by and large, a lot of the safety protocol that's in place are based on faulty assumptions and outdated research. Yeah. So to me, that's another yeah. thing. And, and again, I think really my, the whole point in just bringing this up is if there is, if instructors are gatekeeping, I think it's worth just sitting down and reflecting on it. Like, why are we doing mm -hmm. it? How are we doing it? Who is it benefiting and, and for me, the bigger, the, the overall problem that I have is in one half of my work, I have an open level class, so it's not a big deal. I know what to do. In the other half of my work, I work for a studio that does have levels. And, and, and so how do I, as an instructor working as an employee in the studio, be able to uphold the integrity and the spirit of what the studio is doing in its structure, but also how do I reconcile this, this culture of gatekeeping mm. while at the same time trying to create a class environment that promotes 
sovereignty and body autonomy and mm -hmm. self-efficacy and fearless movement. And I think those things for me have collided a lot. I, I'm figuring it out and, and I'm definitely figuring it out. And, you know, props to uh, my studio that, that essentially allows us to teach the way that we want to teach. And of course, you know, our main goal is to keep people safe. And, and I take that part of my job really, really seriously. But beyond that, um, I have the independence to teach the way that I want to. And honestly, I feel like um, my students are really responding to that, that they are really loving the whole, especially my beginner level students. Because let me just tell you, and I think I mentioned this to you in a DM a while ago, that the the way that we were teaching beginner levels was essentially what Julie Driver was talking about pre Pilates. There was a lot of pre Pilates. There was a lot of talking. There was a lot of explaining things and the clients were barely moving and I just couldn't do it. I was really, really struggling with seeing just so many bored faces. And just to kind of give you context of this, I teach on Saturdays and at the studio I work for, the the suggested amount of beginner level classes to take before being asked to move be, to be promoted to level two is to take six to eight classes. So I'm working with weekend warriors who are coming in on a Saturday. They can only take class on Saturday, and I'm having to tell them, you need to take six to eight beginner level classes with me before you can move up to level two. That's two months for them, for some of them, and they just it became such a power struggle, right? So I really had to figure out a way to make people very, very happy living in my foundations class so that they can fulfill their six to eight classes before being asked to be promoted. So that was kind of my struggle. Yeah. It is interesting. And that's a, you know, that's a very interesting kind of conundrum that, you know, or two conundrums that, you know, how do you navigate that relationship with the studio? And it sounds like you've, you know, been fortunate in your choice of studio and I'm sure you've been diplomatic and, and advocated, you know, in, in a useful way there as well. Uh, but, you know, so you can sort of like living and letting live as it were. Um, and then secondly, if you are in a situation where you can't necessarily change the rules about who gets into which session, then how do you, you know, how do you sort of keep people interested and give them give them an experience of progression and mastery and this fulfillment, you know, from a beginner level class so that they're not like rolling their eyes going like, Oh my God, you know, I'm just, you know, I want, when do we get to work on our abs sort of thing yeah. or whatever? All I'm doing is, you know, breathing and whatever. And yeah, so it's a, it's an interesting challenge. And again, it's like da, 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 layers to the rescue, yeah. you know, would be <laughs> my response to that. Um, so yeah, I think layers layers are awesome because it lets everybody work at whatever level is best for them today, and they get to choose and have, like you said, sovereignty over their own, you know, autonomy over their own progression. It's like maybe last week I was feeling super strong, and today I went for a big run yesterday and I'm sore or whatever, and maybe I just want to do pelvic curls today. <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't want to don't want to do that one legged shoulder bridge. You know, um, yeah. So um, I think we, I think we. I think we solved all of the world's problems. I think that we can cross that one off our list now. All right. You know? Sounds good. <laughs> 
Hey, and I just I just do want to say, uh, if you're listening, uh, well, thank you, firstly. And secondly, um, if you're out there and you're living in a world like that, that, you know, is not like the perfect, like, I'm thinking of when I was a kid and I used to read like Noddy books and Richard Scarry. Did you have those when you were a kid? Were they like British and we got them in Australia? Apparently so. Yeah. Anyway, whatever whatever perfect cartoon world you fantasized about when you were six years old, right? If you're not living in that world and you're living it instead in a harsh, cruel world where you have to make trade-offs between, you know, competing priorities <laughs> um, <laughs> and sometimes your values clash with each other and you're like, oh, do I do this value or do I do this value? Because whichever one I do clashes with the other one. You know, like, do I keep my job or do I, you know… <laughs> Uh, do what I think is best for my clients. Um, so sometimes we have these, you know, harsh or hard choices to make and trade-offs. And, uh, you know, something that I've found over time is like every time I learn something new, I'm like, oh, I've got to do that. You know, I've got, you know, I haven't been doing layers. I've got to go and do layers. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, but, you know, they won't let me do layers because they have a particular way they like to structure the class or whatever, right? It's like, well, if you don't implement this yesterday, that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. It's it's okay. If you've if you've been doing it another way for 20 years, another six months isn't going to kill you. You know, like you can implement one thing at a time and you can make changes slowly and you can take it and leave it. You know, like if you've been doing it for 20 years and you're still okay, probably another 20 years wouldn't kill you either. Well, and if you're you know? doing it, if you, for instance, with, you know, I, I feel like I've just been criticizing the whole idea of having leveled movement. But if if that's what you're doing and it's working for you and your students, then good for you. That's awesome. Keep doing it that way. Yeah. yeah. And I don't want I don't want you to feel guilty like if you think like, oh great, I'll go implement that, but then you don't. And then you come back next week and you're like, oh, I still haven't implemented the thing from last week. It's like, no, that we don't care. You know, you just you can take what you want. If you just like to listen to this podcast because, you know, Natalie's got a relaxing voice and else you get to sleep or something at night and you don't even care what we talk about, you know, like that's fine. We don't care. You don't You don't have to go and be super Pilates instructor if you don't want to. You can just be like, you know, just keep doing what you're doing if you want, I guess, is what is, is what I want to say. Like, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm all, I'm all about change and progression and growth. And that's a fundamental value of mine is, is, is growth mindset. But I also know that it's possible to, uh, create a lot of expectation on yourself to progress and learn and grow and change things, you know, really quickly. And, uh, that can, that can burn you in the ass Well, sometimes. And that can lead to burnout. I'm from Hawaii and in Hawaii, we just say just cruise, which means just relax, <laughs> <laughs> just relax, whatever, take yeah. it easy, <laughs> enjoy life. Yeah. Yeah. What are you going to do for the rest of your day? It's what it's 10 in the morning here now. So it must be like Four. It's five o'clock in the afternoon. I don't know where one of my kids is. I dropped him off somewhere and I'm hoping that my husband will find him and pick him up. Are you doing free range parenting? That's awesome. If so. A little bit. I mean, my kids are almost 14 and 16. So uh -huh. it's the 14 year old who's out and about and they both have phones. And I told them, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I said, I'm talking to Raph. So if, if it's, if only it's an emergency, you can call me, but otherwise just go text your dad. So um, it's, yeah, it's, huh. and they listen to that. Huh? And they listen to you. Oh yeah. Huh. Okay. <laughs> Sounds like they know what's good for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's close to dinner time. 
for me? <laughs> well, uh, I think I'm, it's 10 in the morning. I've been up since like really early this morning because I had a six o'clock lecture. Yeah. And I, to be candid, I had, hadn't finished writing all the slides um, <laughs> last night. So <laughs> I had to get up this morning. I was like, uh, because I don't just like to write it and then give it straight away. I like to rehearse mm -hmm. through it. And so often you find when you rehearse through it, it's like, oh no, that slide really doesn't work there. Yeah. It needs to go somewhere else or it needs to come out or whatever. Um, and you'd notice bits of automation that don't work or whatever. So um, I got up super early this morning and like just downed two double espressos at like th literally three in the morning. Yikes. And, um, what time do you go to bed? Uh, uh, 7.30 in bed, eyes closed, lights out by eight. Okay. You know what? My husband yeah. My husband um, follows the same schedule. He wakes up between three and four and is saying goodnight. Huh. My, I had a friend over the other night at 7.30 and he was walking around giving everybody goodnight kisses and my friend's like, what in the world is happening right now? But he wakes up at three huh. or four, so. Is that for his job or does he just do that by choice or his natural circadian rhythm? Both, both. He has always been an early riser since birth. He's been an early riser, but also he, um, he works in finance and we live here on the West Coast of the United States and huh. the market's open in New York. Yeah. So they're yeah. what, four, five? Three hours. Yeah. Five hours or ahead, more. something yeah, like whatever. that? So a lot, a lot of hours ahead. Yeah. And so he, yeah. he's just up with that, but it helps that he's mm. also a morning person. So yeah, he gets up early, but goes, I mean, he turns into a pumpkin by nine o'clock. So yeah, yeah. So mm -hmm. I get super cranky, like eight 30. I'm like, yeah. I'm lights out. I, I have to, I, I'm also an early riser just by inclination. Like I'd never set an alarm. I just wake up at three. That's when I wake Often I wake up at two and I'm like, oh fuck, do I still have to keep sleeping? It's so boring. I want to get up. But, um, uh, but also because I mean, I'm on the East coast of Australia and we have a lot of students in the U S and also in the UK and yeah. Western Europe. And the only one time in the 24 hour clock where like all three of those continents are in daylight is my kind of like five to 7am, which is kind of like, you know, mid afternoon mm. US time mm -hmm. and late is like 9pm London time, 10pm in Paris, et cetera. So it's like that window kind of like five to seven a.m. is like where I do all my lectures and all my you know community sessions and a lot of podcast interviews and stuff at that time so it's like yeah that's that's kind of work time for me and I often like I like to get up a couple of hours earlier so I can prepare and down lots of coffee and you know enjoy the silence good for you I am not a morning person <laughs> What time do you get up? Um, my alarm by, by choice. My alarm gets me up at seven thirty, but if I had my way, I'd probably get up at nine in the morning. Huh. I can't. I just can't fathom how. I just can't imagine sleeping into a nine. It's like, what do you do in bed all that time? I don't. Well, I don't go to bed until you know after midnight a lot of times. So, huh. but it doesn't help when you have. I mean, my kids are not small anymore, but when my kids were small, my my older son would have to like tiptoe up into the room and say, mommy, I, I need breakfast because it's time to go to school <laughs> and I have to get up. Huh. Uh, has, and has, the, has that reversed now that he's 14? Well, you know, they're, yeah, they're, they're self-sufficient. They have their own alarms. Uh -huh. They make their own breakfast. They wipe their own faces. They, they do everything on their own. Sometimes they don't, I mean, in, in awesome. the school year, sometimes they don't even say goodbye to me. That's awesome. 
I hear the I, I hear the door shut and I'm literally like flying out of my bed <laughs> with my jammies on, like running out saying, bye, I love you. See you. See you this afternoon. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Anyway. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. I look forward to our next one. Yeah. Good talk. Good talk. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.